Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan, and you are in for a treat because my guest today in this bumper episode is comedian, writer, actor, TV presenter, and all round lovely, lovely person, Alison Spittle. I met Alison very briefly a few years ago when we were both panelists on a radio show. But other than taking a selfie together in the lift after the show we never really spoke until now you are very welcome Alison Spittle it's kind of a little bit of a tongue twister Alison Spittle there's a lots of s's in it it is and I have a lisp so I feel that I, I it's very cruel <laughs> to have a name with that many s's in it and uh, a lisp but thank god I don't get to say my name that often <laughs> It's a fab name, actually. Yeah. Um, so the spittle, I've Googled it. Spittle is a, according to Google, is an incredibly rare name. It's from um, Belgium originally. My granddad and granny got, you know, when they you retire and you do your hobbies and uh, they got into genealogy for a little while. So the spittle name comes from Belgium. They're Huguenot. They, um, they fled Belgium um, a few centuries ago. Uh, for religious persecution, ended up in the Midlands in Birmingham. And uh, I've looked up the name. There are a few in Canada, a few in America. Um, Like, my family is the only Spittle family in Ireland. And also, um, like, um, it's worked out that most of the grandkids my granddad has are women. So the Spittle name will probably die out. But hopefully they might hold on to their name as well, you know. It's such a strange, and not to be, it's it's not that I'm being dismissive or anything like that, but do you know there's some things in life that you you don't have to explain or you don't have to think about, and then you think about it and you're like, why is it this way? And taking your husband's name is a is a thing that it's not it's not that I'm incredibly against it and I don't judge people for taking their husband's name but a part of me is like why you know yeah yeah but I mean it, it it's not the same across all cultures in some cultures um the husband takes the wife's name oh so, really? yeah yeah oh gosh I should I should have to look at, I, I should look yeah. into that yeah I think I did actually um I think actually we did a piece about uh, names at one point uh, about this very topic actually on the show where you and I met I'm eventually getting to the what would normally be at the top of the show where you and I first met which yeah. was actually on news talk on a panel here come the girls it was it, it was called yeah. um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it was lighthearted, but I, yeah, one of the topics, one of the days was actually about, you know, how you feel about women taking men's names, et cetera, et cetera. So I did a tiny little bit of research. Research is yeah. too big a word. I Googled it. 
yeah, and yeah. yeah, I remember discovering, yeah, that in different places and different cultures, there's different things happen. So it's not, um, it's not all that, you know, in, everywhere it isn't as, as, patriarchal um, mm. as it seems but actually I was just saying to someone the other day I was uh, doing something and, and they asked me for my um, PPS number and I used to know my PPS number off by heart like from when I got it I had it so long I knew it off by heart then uh, a couple of years ago um, when I was getting you know the public service card mm-hmm. and I went in to get the public service card basically what happened was I had a PPS number and then when I got married they just took your PPS number off you and gave you your husband's with the W on the end of it, which was no. W. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. So my PPS number um, ended with VW. No, I remember even thinking at the time that, ah, oh, Jesus, you know, that's a bit mm-hmm. much like wife. Um, I kind of went back to the day, you see, if you think about it, that the marriage bar, women weren't allowed to have to work. So it was probably just thought, well, what's the point in them having a, a PPS number? But then two years ago, they um, when I got my public service card, they apparently the government like, you know, felt, oh, this was a terrible thing to do to women. So we're going to give them back their own PPS number. So I've got this new PPS number. And I mean, the gesture is great, but like, you know, I really don't want to be going having to learn a new PPS number. So I actually have it stored in my phone somewhere because, you know, the other one is the one that comes to mind. But yeah, there's so many mad things, you know. I I hear stories from, um, you know, my family and for people I meet and, you know, the story about how it wasn't, uh, it was frowned upon that women drank pints in pubs and that Nell McCafferty um, kind of uh, organised a load of women to go to a pub and order a brandy and then order a pint. And if the if the barman would put the brandy down and then when they refused to give the pint, the women would drink the brandy and then leave. And, right. Uh, isn't that, that's like a... I, I, it's not that long ago, because Alison, I mean, I remember really when, sort of when, when women started to drink pints. Yeah. Um, but it was considered, yeah, a, a glass. And um, uh, we weren't allowed into bars so there was mad lounges and then there was a bar um so you really women weren't allowed to go into the bar i don't know if that's still there in some places but they do still exist if you see pubs they do have lounges at the back and then bars at the front so i do see like the the architecture of that is still there it's so strange it's so strange but it's so um and it changed so quickly as well yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the, the, I, I can't tell you the amount of changes that have happened across my lifespan. And I mean, I know, oh. I suppose on paper I'm old, but I don't feel old. Do you know what I mean? And and people talk yeah. about, you know. Um, I'm writing a project at the moment about something based in the uh, late 2000s. So like, let's say 2007, 2009, because yeah. uh, all about the, it's, a, it's about basically two young uh, teenagers trying to get the morning after mm-hmm. pill. And I know I have relatives now and we've talked about it. Younger relatives, you know, uh, 18, 20, that kind of age. They have no idea how hard it was to get the morning after pill um, uh, for like a rural teenager. And I'm so happy they don't know that. Do you know, I'm yeah. so happy that they can just, that it, it, it wasn't seen as such a, a massive inconvenience. Right. So that's the difference sort of being between the rural and the, you know, living in a city. Like, I mean, I grew up, um, in 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 Dublin, so like there was the Well Woman Centre was there, and going back quite a long time, the Well Woman Centre was there. Yeah, you know, 
for, you know, forgetting the pill or morning after pill or, you know, all sorts of things. But I mean, at that point, you still couldn't get those kind of things from your GP, but at least the Well Woman Centre yes. um, was there. But yeah, that wouldn't, you know, as a rural, uh, as you say, as a rural teenager. So I'm, I'm sorry, I was stalking you. I have to stalk all my no, guests. You don't have to explain yourself for that. That sounds like you've done your due diligence and research. Just when I meet people or, you know, if if, if I'm you know, reading about people, are, I, I think it's just a human thing. I'm always looking for some connection, something we have in common, you know. Yeah. The things that I found in common with you actually are are, are to do with places. So, right. Yeah, which is kind of interesting. So, um, I don't know about you, but I love um, to research, um, like, for instance, the place I live now, like this specific street I've researched, um, uh, events that have happened on this street, the local pub. Um, yeah. In the town, I'm. I since I moved to London, I go to this YouTube page called uh, Londonist, and also this other guy called Jeff. Um, Jeff and Vicky, they they go to every uh, tube station in London and they give little historical facts. And I just love, I love oh, my new kind of um, domestic history. And that's my favorite kind of thing to to look up. They they filmed like parts of Faulty Towers here and. Um, and um, the, the the omen and stuff like that. So it's quite wow, um, wow, wow. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I kind of like that. I, I I like that sort of stuff, and that kind of really brings me nicely because I've done that little bit. I, I haven't done a whole genealogy thing, but have tried mm. to kind of look back at relatives on 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 both sides. But you you moved around Ireland then and lived in a few different places. But Mullingar is one of the places you lived in. Yeah, and a lot of my family are still based in Mullingar. Like I made my communion in Mullingar and mm. um a, like the, the main graveyard that kind of houses uh, my dead relatives are in Mullingar. So, ah. you know, I'd find myself there a lot and it is it's kind of the hub, but I, I think maybe the hub is where my grandparents live. So wherever they moved to, they're in Galway now at the moment. Right. Uh, so that would be one of the hubs, but kind of Mullingar is the is the, the growing up yeah that yeah. where you kind of did that growing up so that's that, that's the connection so my nana's from Mullingar oh lovely which part of Mullingar is she from yeah they were actually from the main street oh um, yeah 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 and also they had quite an unusual name and it definitely wasn't an Irish name yeah. in fact I think her father was English <gasps> um, and her name was Cox oh wow <laughs> C-O-X C-O-X, yeah. Because <laughs> I was going to ask you, did you get slagged about, you know, Spittle or was it was it something, you know, was it a, a challenging name to have as a child or did people make that connection? Yeah, they did, but they would, they went for the angle of it rhymes with Skittles. So they'd be like, oh, that's the good. rainbow. Yeah, which I think was a fellatio joke that they were trying to work in. Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah it did I mean like you'd have the because it is it is basically stuff that hangs off the side of your mouth but yeah. there's a few Flemings in my school as well and I thought Fleming is just a more vis for me at least spit is like the one bodily fluid and Fleming is a combo Flem, although we'll, we'll forget about the spelling but the sound yeah yeah oh gosh yeah no you have to hawk up the phlegm although yeah uh, anyway anyway we'll yeah and we won't even mention your grandmother's second name. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine that was easy. To be perfectly honest, although you know she died when I was relatively young, so um, probably long before I ever made any sort of connection so like, like that. So I never asked her. You also spent some time in Moat. 
Yes, the the place that I lived the longest is a place called Ballymore. So I would have went to secondary school in Moat. That would have been the nearest um, mm. town. So yeah, I went. I did my secondary school years in Moat, and it was a yeah. I, I loved. I loved that secondary school. They were, uh, especially as an adult, I look back at it and I'm like, uh, you kind of appreciate how good they were to mm. me because I could not have given less of a fiddlers about school at that point. Something clicked, and I just didn't think uh school was worth my time so i moved uh loads of times in primary school just absolutely loads of times and i was encouraged as a kid to be uh smart my my parents bought me books and i was a book reading child and that was my identity and i would put my hand up all the time in primary school and um yeah and that was my identity was to be the clever clogs and I suppose the place where I settled uh, last, I it's not that it's so strange because uh, it's not as if people would have. I think people mildly ribbed me for being a clever clogs, and then when secondary school came up, I was like, "Well, I can be a different person here and not be right. clever." So that's what I did. I kind of leaned into that a lot. Yeah, I was just a a loud. Uh, a loud kid that would wear like strange clothes and also it was, my way of fitting in was by not fitting in yeah to, to, I mean, yeah I, I mean I think lots of lots of teenagers do that yeah so I think I just opted out of everything of kind of and and so I wouldn't this sounds ridiculous but I wouldn't I, I wouldn't see any authority in uh, the social echelons of the the students that went to school who were lovely, by the way, and I had no problems with at all. It, it's so strange to talk about your past uh, without seeming like you're blaming people because I'm not blaming people. And actually, there isn't one thing that you've said that sounds like you're blaming people. You just sound very much that you're 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 observing your own past and actually how how you felt and why you did certain things actually to be honest you haven't said anything that looks remotely like finger pointing yeah because there's a, everyone in school I would have time for and you know if I met the, the, I, I hold no kind of um, uh, ill feelings and it's so what's brilliant about being a teenager, teenager and looking back at, as an adult is that you you put so much uh, worth into social interactions or what you see. As, and that's why I'm loving watching uh, the TV series Normal People at the moment uh, because, you know, they're spending two or three episodes talking about why someone didn't bring someone to the depths when... In actuality, that's such a tiny part of your life that you don't care about when you're older, but it affects yeah. you deeply at that point. And so, it's a, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of great to uh, to give yourself space, analyze you as a teenager, because then it helps you when you're an adult, kind of try figure out, uh, how to how to be different in in different situations. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fascinating, and it's come up a few times when I've talked to people about how we take some particular moment in our life and let it define us for way too long. And it's usually something from our childhood or our teens when we're actually only learning how to be us. And it just sounds like me that yeah. you just 
you know, you wear the clever clogs that might be closer to who you actually sort of identify with now, but that you needed to try something else on. But I think the problem probably arises when you try it on and then you feel you have to stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise, you know, um, you know, maybe I, I, I don't know what the otherwise might be, but but whereas and maybe it was because you stayed in that school um, for all of secondary school, whereas you'd spent your life, which is not easy as a child, moving from one place to yeah. another. Um, and, and But then maybe had you, had you moved on to a different secondary school, you might have reverted to a different way. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's, it's what it was. And then it's what you learned from that. And I think there's way too much emphasis on school and what we achieved in school and, you know, academia, like I'm actually thinking all these arguments at the moment about the Leaving Cert and whether it should go ahead, you know, in the midst of the COVID crisis. And I'm kind of going, just forget about it for this year. You know, let's do some entrance exam for the university or something. But like, this is a crazy world. This, you know, all bets are off. And no, actually, you know, Leaving Cert points don't really matter. And in fact, they were only introduced a few years ago, relatively speaking. And sort of at my age when you left school. Actually, the points system, I think, was introduced when I left school. But you also had the opportunity, what used to happen before was you just actually sat an exam to get into university. And all you had to do was pass that, was called the matric. And you just had to pass that exam. And there was no passing, you know, that the highest people got in to study medicine and the lowest people got and, you know, stuck with the course they didn't want. You just went in and you, you, you tried out a few things and you decided which course appealed to you. And, and really what weeded people out was whether you failed exams or not. And I actually think that's a far better way because I think we exclude far too many people from university who are perfectly capable um, yes. of, you know, you know, being brilliant at a particular, you know, subject and topic and they're excluded either A, because they didn't get enough points and probably the reason they didn't get enough points is they were forced to do subjects that they're no good at. So it could be someone who's brilliant at language forced to do maths and science and, you know, then their points come down. It's it, like it's a screwed up system. How did I get onto that anyway? No, no, it's good. I think also there's a, an element of class as well because I'm mm-hmm. from like a single parent uh background and my mom couldn't afford grinds and you know or going to the gale doctor or stuff like that and I, I've I saw the pursuit of academia to to I because I was in the higher class and they're all brilliant but like there was never going to be an option of me going up to UCD to to do like two weeks at a and there probably could have been if I researched it more or whatever I'd love to see what's what's that place called? The Institute in Dublin. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The Institute. Their factory. That's that's a factory for people to do, and it's a good resource. And if you're able to afford it, go for it and everything, you know. But you know that that is a nitro boost uh, to get your to get, you know if you have a kid and you want to send them there, you you will. And if I did, I would as well. Like you, you you'd want your kid to have the the best opportunities um i actually sent mine um my eldest in uh to the institute for his final year for sixth year and actually the reason we sent him and we really did have to scrape the money together to do it was we we felt 
so this wasn't about any sort of snobbery and getting tons of points actually from our perspective my eldest has a learning disability um, yeah. and just the uh, regular school was failing him it just you know wasn't making the kind of accommodations that he needed they yeah. were forcing him to take down notes in class just like everybody else and taking notes of something off the back blackboard and writing it down was just exhausting for him. And like I went into the school and I said, look, you know, you're obviously calling it off notes. Can you just give me the photocopies of those notes? And so Darren doesn't have to take it down in the class and he can just focus on, you know, taking the information in instead of exhausting him in an act that really is just replicating, you know. And she said, oh, if I did that for him, I'd have to do it for everybody. So actually for us, the Institute worked out amazingly because that's exactly what they did. They gave you all your notes up front. You were expected to have read them. It was more like university. You were expected to have read them before you went into class. So then class was about discussing what was in those notes. And that worked really well for, 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 for my son. And he was able to, you know, he was given very clear, it was very, very exam focused. Do you know, it was, here's what you need to do to get your grades. And to be honest, we were playing a system like he wanted to go to university, but he was never going to get there because of, you know, the system. So we just felt, you know, the system is flawed. So we have to find the way to play the system so that, you can do what you need to do. And so that's the way we did that. I'm very privileged to have gone to the school that I went to because my school had um, a really good mental health uh, department. And I was in weekly counselling since about 13 up until I was 19. So six years, I got free Free, wow. free mental health help for for and like intense mental health help, and really, really good teachers. Really, like uh, it's about three different teachers I remember that kind of would keep an eye on me. So like they were brilliant, and I was so lucky to have gone to that school. Um, it's not so. It's not like I'm going uh, rich people or anything like that. It's just circumstance, isn't it? Like life is so, and and I feel so sorry for like also like that. I, you know, I've always had an interest in how humans work, you know, and and we sort of knew in some way, you know, by the time Darren was about nine, you know, that things weren't working properly in, in his brain, you know, not yeah. properly. They were working differently, let's put it that way, you know. And I mean, I remember going down to the school and and saying it and actually what the teacher said to me was, um, oh, Mr. you know, Darren was doing, you know, he was doing, he, he was performing at an average level. He wasn't underperforming, but that, there was still, I just knew there was something amiss, you know. And yeah. and that's pretty much what the teacher said to me. Oh, Mrs. Brennan, we can't all have geniuses, you know. You just have to accept that Darren is average, and that's it. <laughs> no, this is not what this is about. But ultimately, again, then it was through me, you know, us pushing and pushing, and then eventually, and again, you have to pay for this. We had to pay to have an educational psychologist assess him, and he had, you know, quite a severe um, learning difficulty. It was incredible what he'd managed, you know with that um but he found that a huge relief because he said oh at least I'm not stupid do you you know yeah 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 um and you know just even some of the simplest things are a a huge challenge and I I think our education system fails to acknowledge that and I do think as well I do think there's a, 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 a certain problem uh with in and I think it's particular in Irish society we're thinking that privilege 
equates with God, you have everything okay. But you know, um, yes, there's privilege in having, you know, maybe living in a middle class estate or you know having you know income coming in or whatever. But that doesn't offer you any buffer of protection against other things in life, like mental health issues or you know general health issues or 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 whatever. But I think the systems fail that. I think it's fantastic to hear that you know, and I think things have moved on that you, for whatever reason, needed counselling and support and that it was there for you, irrespective of who your family were, you know, because I, I just think of all the other people like my son who didn't have families yeah. who could see it or understood. And I mean, that's actually what scared me. I was reading articles. I was trying to read. I was trying to understand. And I remember reading an article and basically, you know, it, it's funny. We both just said it here. Like our prisons, 75 percent of our prisoners have either mental health issues or learning disabilities. So that's mm-hmm. a societal flaw. You know, that that if if society, you know, if we um, could help manage those people better, younger, you know, it's 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 in really, really early stages that we that that we need to help people before they actually kind of get into trouble. But speaking of that, is that something that you've you, you speak openly about, um, you know, your your the issues that you had um, when you were a teenager? I've never thought about it as a thing to keep secret because, uh, you know, I'd have to leave double German and my friends would be like, where are you? And I was like, oh, I was just, you know, at such and such, you know, I just wasn't, they, they just accepted it and it was fine. So I just never had, I've never felt kind of stigma, uh, about having mental health issues because I had treatment for it so young. That's fantastic. Yeah. I think that's, what's going to happen later. You know, it's, it's great to see, I have younger relatives and the way they speak openly about some stuff that I wouldn't have spoken openly about. Um, it's just, and it just makes life so much simpler and lovely and to know, Oh, this is why this person is angry today or whatever. It just communication is just the lubrication of life. It just makes life so much easier. That's a great way to say it. It just shows you how much, like that's what I feel so much change has happened just of course across the course of my lifespan. So um I grew up in in a family with mental health um problems um issues um illness what 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 whatever um you know my, my my father was suicidal when I was a teenager and everybody was just ignoring it. Um yeah. and I happened to be going out when I was 15 my boyfriend at the time his father was a psychiatrist and it actually literally came like that I just said to him you know can you come and help <laughs> You know, because um, literally my father went to bed for nine months and all he talked about was um, was killing himself. And, and I mean, then for the rest of his life, you know, he had a diagnosis back then. Um, it was called um, manic depression, um, whereas now I think we use the term uh, bipolar. But he was much more, thankfully, he didn't have mania. Like and I'm, I, I've come across lots of people and I know um, people who have, um, you know, extremes um for for me mainly i i often even wonder whether the diagnosis was right but he certainly had you know deep 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 depression but as kids we weren't allowed to tell anybody that my father was ill we weren't allowed say anything about that and even as adults and actually even really right up um you know till kind of my dad passed away my mom still had uh, that that's not something that should be discussed. And, and, and it's so sad, really, because my dad had medication and actually 
to be honest, he would have benefited hugely from talking therapy, but he yeah. never had talking therapy. Never, never had counselling or, or, or of any. Never had CBT. You know, he so could have. He was such a clever man. You know, really, yeah. really clever. Um, and often, I think that was part of the problem is that he wasn't challenged. You know, his life wasn't you know matching his his you know, the, the, the level of stimulation that, that he needed. And he possibly and probably had too much time to ruminate and think and would eventually, you know, go down this really right down sort of to the bottom. But he was very cyclical too, you know, so we would kind of have good weeks and then, you know, six or seven weeks where he'd be down. But it's very sad because it's very unnecessary. But I just take great joy when I hear things like that, that, you know, you could talk and that it's even got better, you know, that, that people can just talk openly way better way better and it's it's that whole thing of shame it's just life is so much simpler if you're truthful about stuff i have um i have a friend um who has autism and they are just very passable so it's it's difficult for people to understand why they they just think they're being rude um yeah. And I treat them with so much more empathy now that I know their diagnosis. Yes. And, you know, there's no rouse. You're just like, oh, cool. Okay, that's that's because of that. You know, you just, your brain doesn't even, your brain doesn't even go, oh, does that person have a problem with me? Because you know they don't. You just go, well, actually, no, it's their social skills. They, they, you know, they, they don't they can't quite kind of play the nuances and, and are much more literal. And, and I mean, you know, social, being social, socially interactive, I mean, there's there's so many rules, you know, like it's, mm. it's tough to know, you know, what you say, as you said, like you kind of said that earlier when you were talking about, um, you know, as an adult looking back, you know, learning from, you know, your teenage years and deciding who, who you need to be or who you want to be in certain contexts, you know, and, and that's true. You know, you, you can be true to yourself, but you also to survive in the world, you, you have to be adaptable and, and, uh, you know, slightly adjust who you are in different circumstances. Would you, would you kind of agree with that? Well, all the time, because you know yourself, like you go on the radio and so you're, so, so the cadences will change for me. And also I will not swear or you know, or yeah. um, or give my actual proper uh, opinion on stuff because <laughs> I don't want to be kept to it, and because of the change, do you know. You see, I love that. That's that's. I was just saying this the other day, right? Um, yeah. Sometimes I have to interview people, you know, if there's, you know, for a work in Trinity, if we, we were, you know, interviewing people for, for jobs and I would always have lists of questions. So to make it fair, the same questions for everybody. But um, I would have questions, you know, related to their work and the qualifications, et cetera, et cetera. But then I would also have a few questions I throw in, I'm, you know, from a psychological perspective. Um, and for me, actually, they're probably the more important ones because I kind of think you can train and teach people to do stuff but um sort of you know something inherent about them it, it says more about uh, your ability to work together or you know whether you'd have similar kind of work that work ethics or goals but one of the questions i would always ask people is um tell me a time when you were 
um, convinced to change a long-held belief that you had. Yeah. Right? And you'll be, I mean, it is, a, it's, it's a tough question to get in an interview room, but it's, uh, to me, I think actually it, it was the most telling question always for me because it would flummox people. They'd kind of stop first and they'd think, and I say, take all the time in the world, just think and tell me. But the amount of people who would actually come back with the answer um, of, uh, nope. I've never been convinced to change my, I'm, I'm very strong and, you know, about what I, I believe. And I kind of just went, okay, can't work with you because life is about yeah. getting new information and taking it in. And, and that can involve changing your opinions, your beliefs, your, um, because otherwise you're not updating. You're just, I don't know what the word um, you would call it, but, but it's vital to be able to know yourself well enough that um, if you get more knowledge and information, you may change um, your opinion. Yeah, I, I think that comes from uh, having very strong views as a, a teenager and child. I was very Catholic when I was younger mm-hmm. um, and uh, and everything that went with that. And then, oh, it's mad, like, I um, I think my opinions change most when I meet people that have um, like like probably I'm trying to think. Do you know what I I remember? There was a guy on a horse, and he was an American evangelical Christian, and um, he was going around Ireland for some reason, like on the horse to spread the word of God, and I had it. I think it happened. It happened when I was in secondary school years ago, so it must be like fifteen years ago. Okay. And uh, he he was on the radio and stuff, and I I heard him, and I was like, oh wow! And he came through most. And I have a gay friend that I went to secondary school with, and it's not. I never heard his, the the evangelical Christian's opinion on on homosexuality, but something inside me was like, uh, ask him, ask him what he thinks, and then. The guy was like being just if it doesn't matter, like you know, you're having conversation with school children, so it's just like, yeah, I, I have my beliefs or whatever, and, and uh, oh, not just a part of me was. I, I don't know if I had any change of opinions or anything like that, but you know, you're a teenager and you're like, oh, I have a different opinion to this person. They're an yeah. adult. They're on a horse. <laughs> he, was, he was on a horse and I think I was asking him what, what his views on homosexuality was. <laughs> and um, I don't know, I was really, I was very into debating when I was younger. I yeah. just liked it as a, I had a great teacher, uh, Jerry Hipwell. Uh, he was a priest. He died actually when we were in secondary school and he oh, ran wow. the debating club. And I remember, I remember like once, because uh, I moved down a class because I wanted to be with my mates. Um, Gosh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did big time. And the teachers were like, please don't. And I was like, ah, I'm going to. So I like just every wrong decision that could be possibly made in secondary school, I did it. Like, I just did not, you know. And um, he was in his class and I said something with the word diabolical in it. And he was like, how do you know that word? And I was like 13 or something. And yeah. I was like, I don't know. And and he was lovely to me. He was such a lovely, encouraging, great teacher. I don't know why I'm talking so much about secondary school. But 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He ran the debating club. I love debating club. Debating club was my favourite thing. And when he died, it it kind of like uh, went with him for a little while, you know. So it was very, yeah. like, he was a great guy. To- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com. And remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm really interested in how you became a comedian. Like, is it something that you always wanted to do? Like from inside, you know, the journey inside yourself. Uh, stand-up comedy was not part of my life when I was a teenager. Um, I think I saw Eddie Murphy Raw on DVD once and maybe a Tommy Tiernan DVD uh, at a house party, but not with the sound on. So it wasn't <laughs> a thing that I had a knowledge of or was a part of my life because I grew up in rural Westmeath. And um, I went to college um, in Ballyferma. I wanted to be a radio DJ when I was younger. Oh, nice. Yeah, because I, I used to text into the Ricochet show on 2FM and once a producer rang me and said, would you like to come on and talk about whatever you were texting in about? And I was like, yeah. So I did, and I had a great time on it. And then they said, would you like to come back next week and review films? So I used to, wow. yeah, I used to skip double German on a Wednesday and do reviews for Ricochet. I used to use the phone in the girls' bathroom and just talk about the films I'd seen that week. Yeah. And I loved it. And um I went to college then and studied radio and I did some work experience in a radio station called iRadio. And uh, Bernard O'Shea, is a, he's a stand-up comedian and he's also, he was the breakfast DJ. He said, doing a gig with PJ Gallagher, um, um, I had no interest in doing stand-up comedy after mm-hmm. it was just an opportunity to meet PJ Gallagher because I thought, oh, this is cool because he's on naked camera. I, I did gig and I just had this big rush of adrenaline before where I was like, oh, this could go badly. And um, yeah. and then a big rush of adrenaline after because it didn't go badly. And I've probably never felt the same ever since. Like I've never walked off a stage and felt the way I did the first gig I did, but I keep Do doing it. you always searching for that again? Like, yeah. Great. It's a big addiction. Like I'm very sad yeah. that I'm not able to do stand-up comedy for for the near future because of the, the COVID problem. Um, so it is a, you know, it is a big thing kind of missing in my life, um, kind of having that um, addiction to, to adrenaline. You know, some people go uh, jumping out of a plane uh, mm-hmm. to it and I go on stage. I totally get that. I mean, I used to be an actor and um, I don't know that I, I quite feel it's an addiction, but I did end up, I'm a very late starter. Um, I mean, I did all my exams and I trained as a drama teacher and all that sort of stuff, but I didn't actually really become a working actor till I was in my 30s. I think I was 32 um, right. and I was 
an actor for for 10 years and I loved it like I loved it I would never but still always have that you know the nervousness beforehand and um but I loved working in soap um but um that role ended and then sort of Ireland as you know is sort of a small place and um you know work there isn't a huge amount of work for women plus I was late starting which means I wasn't part of you know the cliques and the crews and you know Ireland can be quite like that certainly sort of in the acting sector it was a bit and I had two small boys so I couldn't just kind of go off to London and do whatever and I ended up then going to university and sort of changing but um, I still perform now like it's become different so I give talks. What what I'm missing um, with COVID so all of my gigs have been cancelled um, um, as well and, and I've done a few online but it's just it's not the same it's not the standing up and performing I'm missing the audience I love seeing their face I love when they smile or laugh at something I said I love when they register a piece of information oh that's what happens in my brain when I do that and mm. I'm missing that feedback I mean is is that what what you get from your audience too like yeah yeah I do and it depends on the different types of audience it's kind of um uh when I first did stand-up comedy it was doing it to clubs a lot so you just wanted to be as funny as possible to as many people as possible and then you develop your own kind of opinions and style and and you know people maybe appreciate that more less people will appreciate it more than more people appreciate it a small bit you know mm-hmm. so I think probably the best gigs I have are to an audience that has specifically come to see me but yeah. when an audience hasn't specifically come to see me it's a different thing and it's a great challenge and it feels good and I put a lot of my self-worth which I shouldn't do into stand-up comedy uh, which is a thing that I should definitely stop doing because um, it's not healthy so mm-hmm. you know that's that's the kind of thing is is the relationship with the audience is important and um sometimes uh podcasting can can kind of scratch that itch in a way mm-hmm. um, and yeah it's, it's strange it's a, it's, a- and I, and I, it's interesting that you said that because i had i kind of just jotted down a few things uh, i like to kind of let the conversations flow but it's nice to have a few things that you want to talk about and actually it's funny that you just said that there about you put a lot of your self-worth in your comedy, because one of the things I wanted to ask you was actually about that. Like, you're very popular. Lots of people really, really, you know, like you and like your performance. And I'm, I was just, I'm, I'm always interested in that. Is that what is it you think that they like, and do you feel obliged to provide that, or can mm. you just, do you feel that you can just be you? And if they like you, they like you. I, it's strange because especially with being inside now, and it's I think it's the same way with people's relationship with social media. Um, sometimes you get rewarded for honesty and you're being honest at it and being emotionally vulnerable because you feel that way, but you get rewarded for that. So it feels strange then. Mm-hmm to do it again because you're like am I doing this because uh I want to or is this expected of me it's strange when I get complimented off people where they talk about oh you you talk about your mental health so openly and it's not a decision I made where I was like I'm going to talk about it openly because either people need to hear about it or it's something that people will like it's just I have observations on mental health as much as I do about crisps or whatever 
you know, observational comedians talk about. And also I'm very self-involved, so I can't, <laughs> I can't do anything other than that. So, um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's a kind of conversation I have with myself all the time. The annoying thing about going through professional help for so long is that you're constantly analyzing your feelings. Yeah. My answer to you would probably change every day, but yeah. I try not to think about it that much because you just have to let things happen, do you know? I'm kind of in agreement with you too, you know. Uh, I think there's huge value in self-awareness. I think, you know, I, I think that really is helpful, but you can't be self-aware all the time because then you're not living in the moment. And I think yeah. you just got to live in the moment and enjoy it. And I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with, you feeling that you found something, you know, because that's what I think about happiness really is. It's about finding something that you love doing and other people want <laughs> in a yeah. way, do you know, yeah. something that you're good at. And and I mean, that they're sort of the principles of, of you know, around how I live my life. And, and actually it, it's that, and I have said this a few times, people are probably fed up hearing it, but it's like a Japanese concept. It's about finding something that you love, something that you're good at, um, something that the world needs. And then the fourth element is um, and finding a way to get paid for it. Now, that's what I with. And I loved one of the quotes. I think you actually said this is um, Alison Spittle does stand up comedy all the time because there's no money in it. I yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's the funny thing about like um, doing my job. When people think if you go on TV, that automatically means money. And I'm just a person that's not good with savings and with money. And also, because I'm doing a job I love as well, I feel sometimes that it's so strange. I just have this like feeling all the time that I have a nice life that I'm happy with. Therefore, I don't deserve to be paid well. Yeah. Do you think part of that is because we're women? Um, number one, I don't, I don't know that if that's the case, but I, I, I just think it goes across all the arts, you know, like certainly as an actor, you're, you, you know, and certainly as an actor starting out, you are expected to work for nothing, like you know, but yeah. also if you give talks, the amount of people who expect you to just go come and, and give talks for nothing. And you kind of go, I'd love to do that, but you know, Hey, I actually have to pay my mortgage and I have to buy food in the supermarket, and, you know, but I, I hear it from authors you know um and and my own son my youngest son is um is a musician and you know that's kind of the same yeah there's a few people you know like that high-end comedians or you know multi-million selling authors and you know number one musicians or whatever that make an absolute fortune but most jobbing artists struggle to make ends meet and and, and you know particularly during covid now you know, I, I presume you had all your gigs cancelled. Yeah, I was supposed to go on tour. March was going to be the month where I made my money um, oh. for the rest of the year. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know. I understand. I used to be an actor, you know, and, and people thought that like I was on Fair City and people thought we were paid loads of money. We weren't. But yeah. also what people couldn't understand was like, you might get booked for six weeks. You're not on a retainer. You earn nothing then, you know, for the next 10 or 12 weeks. And, and an awful lot of actors that I worked with, you know, they would yeah. um, be in collecting their dole in between and because you you don't get paid a huge amount of money. And, and you also don't know if you're going to work next year. And so you might get one really, really good gig, as I'm sure it works for you. And you've got yeah. to make that last till the next really, really good gig. That's exactly it. And I do this thing called co-video parties now. So I'm very... Oh, I, oh, yeah, I was, that's something that I do want to talk to you about. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Like um, uh, someone messaged me maybe the second day that I was doing it and said, do you have 
a Patreon or a coffee account that I can give money to you for, oh. for doing the cool video party. And I was like, no, I don't. But you know what? I will. And so I have a coffee account and then I got sponsored by uh, Flips, which are like a chocolate cover pretzel company. Oh, I'm not oh, advertising it now, <laughs> but I'm just being, this, this is what's happening in my life. But um, they sponsored the Fridays of Covidio Party. So oh, I've been able to pay my rent throughout this. And I'm just so thankful that I think because I didn't grow up with money. So I constantly saw people uh, with stress over money. Like yeah. most of the arguments I would see or most of the, the roadblocks would be, but I don't have the money to do that. But I don't, you know, I don't have the time because I have to work or, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So in my life, I never wanted to be in debt to anyone. I never wanted to get a loan. Also, I used to see loan companies in my estate, like, and they were... Oh, no. Yeah, I grew up with a kind of uh, a very big attitude of I never, ever want to owe anyone money. Like that's just that it would it would hurt me. It would it would physically hurt my mind, I think, to, yeah. to owe someone money. Um, so I don't know how I'm going to get a house. But <laughs> that is very different because I would have been brought up like that as well. Actually, you don't buy something until you can afford it. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of people used to do that sort of thing. And, and, and you know, I grew up in a nice neighborhood, but my, uh, it was only my father worked and there were seven of us. So, you know, um, there wasn't loads of money. And, and you know, I got my shoes from pennies, you know, or from dogs, you know, whereas the, uh, yes, I grew up in a nice neighborhood. Yes, actually, I grew up and still live in Clontarf. And as far as I'm aware, there's no dogging going on on the beach. No, not with COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for people listening. You have to check out an episode of Alison's um, podcast, which was with Maureen O'Connell, who I absolutely love. And the, be, between the pair of them, they were trying to decide where dogging may occur. Yeah, yeah. You decided anyway that it was on um, in Clontarf on the beach. Um, but anyway, yes, I have I have no knowledge either way, whether it does or it doesn't. But <laughs> <laughs> it popped into my head again. You see, the connections are all about places between you and me. But yeah. um, this COVID party thing, it's, it's fantastic. Do you want to just explain what it is? Because, you know, maybe people listening haven't, haven't a notion and who, lo- who knows how long we'd be in lockdown. You might get more people <laughs> tuning in and, and, and dropping a few bob into your, in, into your coffee cup. Yeah. And like, this is it. They don't have to at all. Like I started a video party the day after all of my gigs got cancelled because I realised how far into this we were going to go because all the gigs throughout the year were getting cancelled. So I was yeah. like, oh, this is, this is not going to be three weeks. And I felt so sad that one of my favourite activities to do is go to the cinema with people and kind of talk about the film after it. And I just realised that wasn't going to happen for a long time. So I said to my friends on Twitter, does anybody want to watch a film at the same time and we can tweet about it? using the hashtag go video party Mm -hmm. and I'm very bad at making decisions so I got people to choose the film with a poll and we watched uh, Clueless together and it was just brilliant crack and more and more people started getting involved and then someone said do you want to do it tomorrow at the same time I was like yeah why not I'm doing nothing else and I've also put a lot of effort into it I would like uh, do costumes and also I'm just doing it every day because people have given me feedback and said I like it and like the thing about it is the Netflix is a is a finite resource so <laughs> you know we are we are like uh, circling the drain for films at the moment but it's the communal aspect and and as well as that 
what's great is in within the first weeks, like loads of people are involved. And I see the same people coming back, leaving for a week, coming back. And it's great for the, what I get from it is the interaction of when I do like, for instance, podcasts or like Zoom, Zoom chats with friends. I'm talking a lot. I'm I'm trying to check in emotionally with the people I'm talking to and um, trying to give them as much information about my week. Um, also, like making sure my face is a happy face or, you know, your whole interaction is kind of under a microscope because you're there being there for your friend and checking in. That's the thing yeah. about Zoom. You can see your own face. So just kind of you're, you're, you're sort of resetting yourself every so often, as you just said, you know, oh, make sure you smile. Oh, you look a bit cross there. Smile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look like you're listening hard. Um, and, you know, if we were if there were six people at a, at a table, you'd zone out your face would zone out. You'd be listening, but you wouldn't be concentrating on making your face seem like you're listening. But if I'm in a zoom meeting with six people, I am just with the finger on the chin going, yes, good point. And like, I've nothing to contribute to this conversation, but I'm going to look like I'm listening. And with, with the COVID very, it's just tweeting about Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's getting that element. It's not feeling as lonely, but also it's not like a, a family Zoom call or, or a f- catching up with friends Zoom call. It's the interaction you'd get if you're in a queue and you just had a little chat. I think it's a fab idea. I can see exactly, you know, the appeal of it is. There's so many people. I mean, are you, are you li- do you live alone, Alison? Well, the, so what happened was uh, I live with people. One of them got COVID, so everyone had to self-isolate for weeks. Right. So. I kind of went for a few weeks not touching anybody or talking to people or, you know, um, so that was hard and it was good to have that uh, element of talking to people. And also it was good to not just constantly talk about the person that was sick in the house. Like whenever relatives were talking to me, it was like, how are they? What's going on? That type Mm. of thing. And and I mean, I've said that the value of laughter, it's actually increased even, you know, and increases um, during times like this. You know, there's so many awful things happening. You know, nature has given us a stress buster and that stress buster is laughter. When you laugh, your cortisol levels actually reduce you know um and and it's just critical that we do it it's critical that we do silly mundane you know stupid things because we're so bombarded and because uh, the news is so dreadfully depressing i mean i just had to stop myself i can't i can't listen and i mean actually i'm not watching any television or any movies i just feel that with my own mental health at the moment pretty much most movies will have some sad part or you know something yeah. that emotionally and i'm just it's just I just know myself well enough to know that now is not a good time for me to watch movies that may have um, sort of sadness in them. I had started to watch um, This Is Us, which is um, an amazing drama series. I started to watch it, thought it was incredible, but then realized it was starting to get sad. And so actually I've just put it aside. I will come back to it at another time. But I just know that, you know, with all the deaths and what's going on with COVID and all those changes that that would just be adding sort of fuel into the mix. So 
That's what I do. I think I think we've just got to do whatever we need to do because mental health issues are you know are not going away just because we're in COVID, and in fact, some of them are going to get worse. And so, something like you've done is amazing. You know, you might just say that it's a bit of crack, and you know, just that chat in the queue, but that can be the lifesaver for somebody. You know, it really can. Um, and I, I think we kind of need uh, more of those kind of things. And um, I think we just, as a society, it's, it, it's really crazy. The things that we value, the people that we pay huge amounts of money to, and mm. the people who actually, you know, the arts is a big area that gives people joy and gives meaning to their life, whether it's movies, whether it's comedy, whether it's books, um, whatever it is. You know, just imagine, imagine COVID-19 without any of the arts. We'd all be slitting our wrists because there'd be nothing to do. And yet, you know, the majority of people working in the arts receive little or no um, income. Um, and I think we should actively be trying to change that the arts are essential. They're not like fluff on top. If you just even look at how humans evolved, you know, yes. we started storytelling and that's, you know, comedy is storytelling with fun, you know, laughter added in, you know, when we were painting on the walls of, of, of caves going kind of way back. And I, I just think we, we value loads of the wrong things. Yeah, we should. The other part is um, also people that are uh, delivery people, uh, work, the people who work in shops. Um, who are bin 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 men bin people, um, you know our society wouldn't work at all. I've been getting um, you know cards and stuff from family. I've been sending over gifts, um, especially to my older relatives because it's it's hard if they don't know how to use WhatsApp. Yes. Um, yeah, or they don't have access to WhatsApp if they don't have a, a smartphone with the. I've been trying to get. I was talking to a loan the other day and just saying, is there any way we could set up even a pen pal service? It would make such a difference. Massive. We could just write letters to older people, you know, even that we don't know, but just for them, to, even if a letter popped on their door every day, yeah. that would just help. And if they then had somebody to write back to, that would help. Uh, you know, there's we we really there's so many kind of vulnerable people and dying. In is only one of those vulnerabilities. Um, you know, loneliness can kill you uh, as well. And we just have to kind of find the balance on that. Um, I really enjoyed your podcast chat with Deborah Francis. And actually, you've worked with her a good bit in The Guilty Feminist. Feminist yeah, she's amazing. She's an amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing. And I love The Guilty Feminist. It's just fab. You contribute to that quite a bit now, don't you? Yeah, I'm very lucky. I mean, Deborah has been, Deborah lives in the same part of London as me. And um, when I moved here, she she did like a little dinner party with people that lived here and just said, this is Alison, she's your new oh, friend. Oh my um, God. And she didn't have to. Oh, that's yeah. so nice. That's the thing about her is that like, she just goes above and beyond. She's just a very thoughtful person. And um, wow. I'm lucky to have her as a friend. Being with the guilty feminists has helped me loads. I mean, yeah, and I just looked at like I, I think she said in your podcast, I was just so jealous. <laughs> she had seventeen million downloads of the guilty feminist podcast in the first eighteen months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the reason I brought her up, um, aside from the fact that she's just amazing and brilliant, she said something that speaks to me immensely, and 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 something um 
and and it is that she said, I think it's something like, I can always tell when someone knows they're going to die. And and what she meant by that is, you know, someone is aware of the fact that we only have a certain amount of time on this planet. And um, I live my life like that now as I've got older. I mean, I'm 57 now. So, um, I know, and for the last few years, I've known that that I've lived more than I have left to live. Yes. And I have found that to be the most inspiring way I have ever thought about my life. Now, I've said it to my husband, and he went around depressed for about four days, and I kept saying, what is wrong with you? And he said, you just fucking told me I've lived more than I've left to live, but I can't cope. Whereas for me, it actually became this fuck it, get your ass in gear, you know? Yes, you've done loads of things, but there's so much more you want to do. And it also helped me immensely just cull the unnecessary stuff in my life. Like I I realized that there was an awful lot of what I was doing was essentially because I was Irish and because the way I was brought up, not never to say no. And so I was doing an awful lot of shit that didn't mean anything to me. So now I try to just do the stuff that I love. I still struggle. I still struggle. I still say yes to things. I still find it hard to ask to be paid to do things. Um, You know, that's all still there. But at least I kind of am focusing on stuff I like like the what I'm loving about the podcast is just getting to have these conversations with such interesting and inspiring people like yourself uh, it's fab do you like your I think your response at that time <laughs> was that you because of your Catholic upbringing I thought it was really um really interesting I think you said that you had sort of from Catholicism a sense of forgiveness and a sense that you know if you say sorry everything will be all right and that you're less aware of your mortality you know so she was talking about being aware of mortality and you were kind of saying well no I'm not really because I don't live the healthiest of lives and <laughs> I just yeah. think everything will be okay but I think maybe that was just a kind of quip you know a humorous response no I'm also yeah I have a weird relationship with death I had no one close to me that died uh, when I was a child until until I was about 11 when I was born uh, I had f- I had nearly a full set of great grandparents. So I, I was just used wow. to people living for a very long time. And it mm-hmm. seemed like death was a thing that would be uh, very far away and something I didn't want to think about also because I was afraid of hell, the concept of hell, and was convinced yeah. I was going to go to hell. So I just didn't think about it at all. And then, you know, when you, you're a teenager, you get older, uh, people close to you die. Also, probably the person I was most close to that, died in a way that wasn't sudden was a big big atheist like the biggest atheist I knew so my grandma was dying and um, she uh, was very not into the concept of an afterlife and my Irish side of my family um, would just throw holy water at a problem would go look it's fine there with the angels now that type of thing you know and that was definitely a thing. I like that. that. Oh, holy water at the problem. I like that. Yeah, that was a that was a thing. So to have someone so calm and so resi- not resigned. I mean, she was scared and everything, but she had a real dignity in her. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would talk openly about stuff. And just I secretly in the back of my mind didn't think she was going to die. So when she asked me to do her eulogy, I was like, Yeah, yeah, I'll do your eulogy. But I uh, like like homework. I didn't do it until she had passed. So. Mm-hmm. That's a regret, I'd say. Well, what an honour, Alison, that that it's you she wanted to do her eulogy. That's lovely. 
Yeah, which is my first stand-up gig, wasn't it? So... <laughs> Did you get them laughing? I think that's it's good if you yeah. did. I did, I did, and also like um, she was probably like behind. Like I, I was very lucky to be brought up in a family on both sides that were just very encouraging and saw a lot of potential in me. She was a person who just like tried to get me into Mensa when I was a kid, and she was very into the idea of me being academic, and I was just pissing away that. And like once again. She never said she was disappointed in me, never, you know. So, like, just, I'm an incredibly, incredibly lucky person. She died when I was 19, and I wish she a couple of more years where I did well at stand-up, that she could see that. I get that, you know, but I think there's nothing we can do about that. I mean, you know, no. I kind of feel the same with my, with my dad. I was the first person ever in either families to go to university and they had to wait a long time as I said I was 42 I got a scholarship to do my PhD in Trinity and my dad was just over the moon um but alas he died a year into my PhD so he never got to he, 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 saw, never got, he saw where you were going so that's good he where I was going but would you believe like the irony how things happen but it transpired that I graduated with my PhD on the anniversary of my father's death like I just sort of took that as as a something we need those connections, don't we? They kind of give us comfort. I don't know what it is. I mean, it's not just the, so we need the social connection. And that's why this is challenging so many people, what we're living through at the moment. Um, we need that social connection to survive and to feel well. But we also need to find other connections. Each time I go to interview a guest, you know, if you've never met them before or you don't know them very well, you know, kind of, gosh, how is this going to work out, you know? And what will we talk about? And will we have a, will we have a conversation? So my instinct is always to look for some sort of connection which is exactly what I did here um it's not something that I consciously do it's just happens my brain it's like you with your songs um you can't help but make that connection we've been talking for absolutely ages this is just fantastic I've loved every single minute of it you've actually surprised me in some ways it's lovely when you've never you know really had that sort of conversation with someone um yeah. it's fascinating and I could probably talk to you forever there's one thing that I like to do at the end and that is just to ask my guests if there is any piece of advice, any sort of mantra they have, anything that they, you know, would just like to share with listeners. The, the podcast sort of tagline is that I interview interesting and inspiring people about thriving and surviving in life. Um, I suppose anything on those themes, well, you, you know, whether you feel, you know, you're thriving, but at sometimes I'm, I'm sure like all of us, you feel like you're just surviving. But if there's any sort of tips or anything that you would like to share about um, about surviving life or even very specifically about surviving through COVID or how you have come to thrive in in life yeah I think the biggest thing for me personally is that a big part of my identity was like making sure that people liked me like I would change myself yeah. to make people like me I would uh, do stuff within to be a people pleaser and because my biggest fear was people not liking me but being mm -hmm. a stand-up comedian lots of people don't like me and that's cool and it feels it's so strange that when you have a fear of that, you avoid it for so long. And then when it actually happens and you can't control it, it actually, it's actually fine. Yeah. I suppose like every kind of like milestone I've had, I've been afraid because like when I went on the late, late show, it's like delighted to be on the late, late show. It's like, Oh, this is cool. My grandparents would be so proud of me. This is a way to show that like 
uh, they they don't have to worry about me uh, because the weird thing about being a comedian is like all the time my poor grandparents and stuff are like are you okay for money are you okay yeah. we'll help you you know but I remember feeling weird about it and I was like why why do I feel like a sense of foreboding and I was like oh it's because it's safe when you're doing stand up in like a 60 seat room you don't get to hear people you just hear the laughter and you don't get to see or hear people that don't like you and it could just be one or two but when you're in front of like uh thousands that's gonna add up you know so i think it's like the power to know not to stress so i don't have the power to make people like me yes uh, and i thought i did and i would do everything i could to, to kind of prevent people not liking me I would imagine a lot of people just, you know, do want to be liked. But the, the, I, I think that's just such um, an astute comment. The most important thing is actually to like yourself. Yes. That's harder to do than yeah. it sounds. But instead of working really hard to get other people to like you, actually all that matters is liking yourself. And then you can't go wrong because you won't do stuff that's, not going to sit good with you. Do you know what I mean? Because you yeah. won't like yourself. Whereas if you're trying to please other people and get them to like you, you might actually do stuff that mm, you don't feel comfortable about. Yeah. Also, like there's times where I haven't liked people or I've been like willfully not aggressive. It's a way, do you know, where, where sometimes maybe there's someone new in your circle and you kind of have a, a stead refusal to, to like them. And I'm like, why? Why am I feeling that way? Oh, because they remind me too much of me or I associate that personality with that time in my life or, or whatever. So when people, it's it's funny because um, I probably get like the most negative uh, attention about my weight. And like when I go on telly, they'll be like, some people will treat me and go, oh, it's very bad that you're on television. You're uh, glorifying obesity. And I'm like, well, number one, glorifying, thank you. They have those feelings because it's not because of me. It's because of something else in their life. Maybe they're worried about a relative. Maybe they hate them, their own body. Um, there's something There's something in it. And I feel it's weird to go, I feel bad for them. I don't feel, I mean, number one, the, no matter what kind of way you're feeling about yourself, you should just not make other people feel bad. And there's kind of, in my head, there's like, I'm kind of sick of empathizing with people because I've been brought up my whole life to do it. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish I didn't know why you're like this. I wish I could just call you a prick, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, uh, I think it's been a big weight off me. Gosh, some of the stuff. I, yeah, you really just wonder about people, what is going on in their lives, that they have to be so nasty to other people. And what does it matter to you what somebody else is doing that's causing you no harm? Yes, and that's that's a, that's a, that's my, I think that's my biggest mantra is like, whatever doesn't cause you or other people any harm doesn't concern you. Brilliant. And that's a fantastic note, I think, to end on. I have loved every minute of this. Um <laughs> Thank you so much, Alison Spittle. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to Alison. She is genuinely one of the nicest people you could meet. I love her honesty and to be honest, I was absolutely blown away by her level of self-awareness and how well she knows herself and how willing she is to take responsibility for her own choices and actions. To be honest, I think that is one of the keys to having a super brain. And I am so grateful to Alison for letting me take a peek inside hers. 
My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Tune in on Thursday for this week's Superbrain Booster Shot and feel free to email me at info at sabinabrennan.ie to tell me how much you love the show or follow me on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan or on Instagram at Superbrain Podcast or at Sabina Brennan. Subscribe on Acast, Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, That's all from me. Till next time, stay safe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>